0: Well, if you got your Bible, go ahead and get that open to Romans chapter 8. This is your first Sunday here. We're psyched that you're here, guys. Uh, We've been slowly army crawling through the book of Romans together, and uh, Romans 8 is a doozy, okay? So uh, originally, I was, uh, you know, earlier this week when I was studying, we had Romans 8, we had it cut into two different sermons. Um, uh Uh-uh. No, not going to happen. We're going to take that. We're going to expand it to five sermons over the course of October. So uh, I was thinking of like a snappy name, you know, Romans 8, October. There's nothing there for me. So um, we're spending all of October in Romans 8. Get psyched about it. Uh, if, if you're feeling crazy, maybe you even want to take on the challenge of reading Romans 8 every night for every night in October. That'd be pretty sweet. That'd be like, how many days are in October. 31. Okay, so you could read 32 verses 31 times if you want to. Uh, But chapter 8 is a doozy. Some theologians refer to it as the greatest chapter ever written. I don't care what you think of that. Maybe you're like, well, actually, they're all good. Fine. That's great. I'm just saying it's super, super, super big in Romans 8, and there are some things that Paul's doing that are fantastic. So I am excited to dig into it. Get that open to Romans chapter 8. Here we are After a brief sermon series on our values in the book of Romans, again, the greatest letter ever written. Uh, Just as a little bit of a a heads up, Paul is the author of Romans, a little bit of a recap. And it's, it's worth a reminder that Paul is writing to some really messed up house churches in the ancient Roman world. We don't know how many Roman house churches there are. We think maybe five, maybe seven. Um, but they're composed of about 10 to 30 Christians each. But what makes them messed up is that they're all having an identity crisis. They're made up of Jews and Gentiles, and they're trying to get along. And the reason why it's so hard for Jews and Gentiles to get along is that there's an identity crisis that's forming in each one of these churches because historically, the Roman Gentiles are outsiders to the covenant of God and Jews are insiders to the covenant of God because many, many, many moons ago, if you know the story of Scripture, God chose a man named Abraham, and when Abraham's lineage wound up in slavery in Egypt, God sent a dude named Moses to save his people out of Egypt, and it worked. God sends Moses to save his people out of Egypt. It works. God saves his people, leads them through the Red Sea where Israel's enemies were destroyed and drowned and God's people cross safely over through the Red Sea. And once God's people were redeemed, Moses ascends to the top of Mount Sinai to commune with God and God sends Moses down to Israel with something really, really, really important that would bind them together. The law. The law. The law is what makes them the people of God. The law is what Moses brought back down from Mount Sinai with him. The law is what binds them together. It's no, it's no exaggeration to say that the law was the identity of the people of God. And guess who wasn't there when God gave his people the law? Well, Gentiles weren't there. So how are Jew and Gentile going to come together and worship together, two separate people groups with two separate identities? To phrase it a little bit differently, how does Paul, poor Paul, pastor these two opposite groups to get along in the household of God? How does he get the Bloods and the Crips to worship together? How does he get the Capulets and the Montagues to worship together? How does he get the Republicans and the Democrats to worship together? How does he get the conservatives and the liberals to worship together? This is not a 2021 problem. This is something that Paul dealt with a long, long time ago. And so for seven straight chapters, Paul has done one thing to bind these people together. Preach the gospel. So for seven chapters, he's been bringing it, saying the same thing, chapter after chapter after chapter, preaching that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus apart from works of the law. <gasps> What do we do with the law? Apparently, the woman of God, the man of God, is no longer defined by the law. And so this is like a tectonic plate shift underneath the feet of first century Jews. To say the least, this is kind of like pulling the rug out from underneath the Jews. And it leaves this gaping question of identity. Who are they? Moses led God's people through the Red Sea. He ascended to the mountain and he sent the law down for them. What does Jesus send down from the mountain? To bind them together. You see what you see where I'm going with this? You feel this? You see how Jesus is the new Moses? So so Jesus, like Moses, leads his people through the Red Sea of baptism where he drowns our enemies of sin and the devil. And then when Jesus dies and is resurrected, he too ascends to the heavens. And what does he send down to bind us together? Not the law, not another law, not more commandments. So who fills the law's shoes? Jesus leads us through the Red Sea of salvation. He ascends to the heavens through his death. And instead of sending down the law, he sends down, wait for it, the Holy Spirit. Oh, So the new Moses sends down the new law, which is Jesus sending down the Holy Spirit. So all of a sudden, there's this huge shift in the book of Romans, where in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit is never mentioned besides once or twice in passing. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times. Can I say that again for the people in the back? 21 times, Casey. 21 one time. So let's buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, because we're going there. We're going after the Holy Spirit this morning. Paul knows that the only key to binding together Jew and Gentiles is the Holy Spirit. Paul knows that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace and unity. Paul knows that he's confronted with thousands and thousands of years of Jewish norms of using the law to make Jews inside and Gentiles outsiders. And so Paul knows that the only sufficient power to confront thousands of years of norms is the Holy Spirit. So faced with this task in front of him, Faced with the Capulets and the Montagues, the Bloods and the Crips, the Republicans and the Democrats, the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul sits at his desk with his parchment, his forehead wrinkles, he rolls his sleeves up, and he launches into the greatest exposition on the Holy Spirit ever written in the middle of the greatest letter ever written. And it makes me wonder, are you guys excited to think about the Holy Spirit this morning? You guys sight? Let's go. Let's get them. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Twice, you know? Seven brilliant chapters in Romans. He just references the Holy Spirit in passing twice. Then all of a sudden, Paul launches into chapter 8, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for flesh or for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, But according to the Spirit. You walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we space out for these next 30 minutes, if we get no takeaways from the sermon, Let it be known that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict that hangs over our heads says no condemnation. Over Cole's head, no condemnation. Over Carlos's head, no condemnation. Over Catherine's head, no condemnation. Over Aubrey's head, no condemnation. Over everybody's head in Christ this morning is the verdict that says no condemnation. So Lord, work in us, move in us. And if we're not under the law, help us to see what life under the Spirit is. In the precious name of Jesus, that all God's people prayed. Guys can have a seat. clear this morning already. Um, I want to be super, super precise in my preaching. All Paul is saying in these first four verses is, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are not under condemnation. We're gonna unpack what that means, but Paul opens chapter eight with this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant phrase. This is one of those phrases that changes the trajectory of people's lives. It's one of those phrases that people look at and say, this is one of my favorite Bible verses in all 66 of the book of the Bible. So look at verse one, circle it, star it. I don't care what you gotta do, get it tattooed on your forehead, but remember this phrase. See it in God's word and don't just hear it roll out of my mouth. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want us to feel what that means when he says there's no condemnation. So we got to think about the word condemnation, okay? So when, when I was little, um, I... I always thought that the worst thing in the world was physical pain. And one of the reasons why I thought that is because I, I like broke every bone in the book. Like I was constantly experiencing physical pain. That's probably not a surprise for those of you who, who know me really well. Because growing up, I was a little whippersnapper and little ankle, ankle biter, little tree climber. So if you can picture me as like a kid in grade school who's 50 pounds, all smile and bowl cut, climbing a tree... That, you guys remember the bowl cut? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Can you imagine Jay Frick in a bowl cut? Dude. You got it. You had one. You would have one, dude. I, and I'm sure yours was great. Mine was dope. Like, I had like the dopest bowl cut in the world. It was one of those bowl cuts where like it was so exaggerated. It was like the hair part was like two inches thick, and then it just cut down to nothing. Like, like uh, like that character in Super Mario, the mushroom guy, that's what I look like. So that has nothing to do with my sermon. But growing up, I, like, I busted my leg, I broke my wrist, I, I constantly injured myself, I busted my, my toe playing kickball, I sprained my ankle like two dozen times, like I was, always, I was always hurt and I always thought that physical pain was like the worst thing in the world. But there's something way worse than physical pain, relational pain. There was this phrase growing up. I don't know if you guys used it when you were growing up. It's a really simple phrase, but it was used to shut people up when they were talking. So if you didn't like what somebody was saying or if you were in the middle of an argument with somebody, all you would say to them, and I hated this phrase more than anything else in the world. I don't know if you guys use this, but all you'd say is, you're done. You guys use that? Okay, so it was a Hampton thing. So I remember being in the cafeteria one time when I was really, really little, and I was in the middle of an argument about, I don't even remember what. It was probably something really, really stupid. But I'm a words guy, so I'd like to listen to people, and I'd like to be listened to as well. And so we were in the middle of the argument. The person across from the table from me didn't like what I was saying, and I saw it. He raised the hand, he pursed the lips, and he said, you're done, and it drove me nuts. It was the worst feeling in the world behind the back. And so this dude, this jabroni at the cafeteria, I'm eating my chili crispito, probably. And he says to me in the middle of my sentence, you're done. It's the worst feeling in the world, right? Just cut off, feeling like I didn't have a voice whatsoever. I tried to keep on making my point, my argument. And all I said was, no, you're done. You're done. You're done. And it was the Worst feeling in the world. My blood boiled. Felt like I had been ostracized. Felt like I didn't have a, a voice, like I didn't matter. A little 60-pound cold in grade school, five pounds of skin and bone, 50 pounds of smile in a bowl cut. Just felt horrible. Voiceless. Banished. So I that's one of the days I realized that relational pain is way worse than physical pain. And this, by the way, is like, it's a silly example, but it's really close to the biblical concept of condemnation. Paul calls the law the ministry of condemnation because when the people of God broke the law in the Old Testament, they were considered condemned. What the leaders of the community would do is banish them from Israel or at least banish them from the temple in the presence of God and they would be kicked out, voiceless, condemned. It's as though the leaders of Israel would look at them and say, you're done. And, uh, Once you begin to see condemnation that way in the text, as relational pain, the relational pain of being cut off from blessing, you're actually really, really close to the biblical understanding of condemnation. That's why being condemned by Christ means being cut off by Christ and casted into outer darkness. And I love Romans 8 verse 1 um, because I just think that I don't care how old you are and I don't care how mature you are, and I don't care how much theology you've learned, I just honestly think that all of us have a grade school kid inside of us whose deepest fear in life is condemnation. Feeling that if the church really knew what was going on in my life, they would look at me and say, you're done. The feeling that people really knew what was going on in my heart and the darkness in my heart, if people really knew that, especially Christians, they would say, you're done. So we walk around being disingenuous, being inauthentic. We can't reveal what's actually in our heart because of this fear of condemnation. And I just really pray that nobody ever feels condemned at this church. That nobody ever experiences a church leader or a church person looking at them and saying, you're done. And like it's one thing to have the fear of hearing that from other people. But underneath that fear is the fear that deep down we worry that one day when we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we lock eyes with the lover of our soul who we spent all of our life chasing after, I think we all kind of worry that Jesus is going to look at us and say, you're done, cast us into outer darkness. And what Paul does is he preaches at that inner grade school kid inside of you that fears more than anything, that feeling that Jesus is going to condemn you. Because look at what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in other words, when you get face to face with Jesus and he looks at you, Jesus will never, ever, ever say to you, you're done. What he will say to you is, you're mine. So you're not condemned this morning, guys. I don't care what your week was like. I don't care what went on in your heart this morning, you're not condemned. And the reason for that is actually deeply theological, okay? So like, it goes back to the the prominence that the law had in the place of Israel, because when Jesus ascends to the mountain of God, like Moses, he didn't send you the law. Moses ascended the mountain and sent down the law, which was good, but it also condemned people. So for those in Moses, there is condemnation, but for those in Christ, there's no condemnation. So what did Jesus send down from top of the mountain? Well, don't take my word for it. Look at your Bible, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what Paul's doing is he's laying down theology to help people understand that Paul sees the Holy Spirit as the new law. In the law, it, it, it's It's awesome. The law is instructions on how to obey God, what to do to please God. It tells us what to do, and that's great. It tells us how to do it, and that's great. But do you know what the law couldn't do? It give us the power to actually do it. It can tell us what to do, but it can't give us the power to do it. And so the Holy Spirit unlike the law, gives us the power to do what God demands from us and the power to live for God. This phrase, the spirit of life has set you free. Go underline that if you've got that Bible open. Highlight that if you want to, because it marks a significant shift in the book of Romans. I'm getting a little bit literary on us this, this morning, but you should feel the tectonic plate shift under your feet as you read Romans chapter 8. You should feel like you've been staring into the darkness for seven chapters, and then boom, in chapter 8, Paul turns the light on and you're starting to see the Christian life in a totally new way. And the reason is because in the first seven chapters of Romans, like I talked about, Paul doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Technically, he references the Holy Spirit twice in passing in those first seven chapters and that's because Paul is a brilliant writer and Paul's been waiting and waiting and waiting for the right moment in his letter. And he's been building and building, and building his argument. And right when the people of God see that the law is no longer their identity, right when he pulls the rug out from underneath them, right when they have that identity crisis of, if we're not under the law, then who in the world are we? Right at that moment, boom, Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. This is a huge shift. Two passing references to the Holy Spirit in chapters 1 through 7, and then in chapter 8, Paul references the Holy Spirit 21 times in one chapter. On average, that means that in the first seven chapters, Paul references the Holy Spirit 0.2 times per chapter, and all of a sudden, he references the Holy Spirit 21 times in one chapter, and it's because we got to get that the new Moses didn't send down more laws. When Jesus ascended to the heaven, he didn't throw you a rope because you wouldn't climb it. He didn't give you a ladder because you wouldn't climb it. He gave you God. Because it, it takes God to know God. It takes God to follow God, so he sends you the... To- The Holy Spirit, if you want to know God, you have to do that through God. And the reason is because theologians refer to this as the human dilemma of sin. Sin's a price that only human beings should pay because humans broke the law. But sin is a price that only God can pay because only God is perfect in regards to the law. You see that dilemma? Only humans should pay it, but only God can pay it. So that's an impossible dilemma. Can't be solved. Only humans should pay it, but only God can't pay it. You can't solve that dilemma unless God becomes man. Which is exactly what Paul goes on to teach us. Look at verse three. He goes on to say, For God has done what the law could not do. He didn't send you a law, he didn't send you a rope, he didn't send you a ladder, he sent you God. God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin. So look at how careful Paul is to describe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Paul describes this by saying that God sent Jesus, quote, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul doesn't say that he sent Jesus in sinful flesh. Jesus is God. He didn't sin. Paul also doesn't say that he sent Jesus only in the likeness of flesh because Jesus did have flesh. Jesus is a man. So Paul's phrase in the likeness of human flesh is Paul's brilliant attempt to teach us that Jesus was not a bodiless spirit guard, spirit god and Jesus was not merely another sinful human being he is somehow some way 100% god and 100% man which makes him 100% able to pay the price that only humans should pay but only god can pay and the way that god pays this price is through condemnation which is kind of cuz like earlier in verse 1 you heard me say that you're no longer condemned and that there's no condemnation hanging over your head. That you're no longer under condemnation. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't condemning. Right? That's the kind of stuff that out of context, you, you kind of start to view Jesus through hippie sunglasses. right? And you begin to wrongly see him not as King Jesus, but as like this hippie, non-condemning God who's just like chillaxing all the time and just chill up in heaven with his AirPods in, you know? Listening to Bob Marley, man. Everybody surrounding the throne with bongos, just, you know, just having, just, just relaxing, not condemning whatsoever, no man. Jesus is super condemning. Jesus is really, really, really condemning. And that should make you really, really happy because that's actually good news. Because Jesus doesn't condemn you, what does Jesus condemn? Look at verse 4 the end of verse three into verse four, he condemned what? He condemned what? He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. If you have the Holy Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you so that you would walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul is bringing his argument full circle when he says that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. In verse 1, Paul was not pitching you some baseless claim when he said that there's no condemnation in Christ. The reason why your sin can't condemn you is because God condemned it. It's been kicked out of your life, it's been ostracized, it doesn't have a voice. Jesus looked at your sin in the face and said, You're done. That's the gospel. You can almost imagine Jesus and your sin arguing at the cafeteria table. Sin saying, well, you know, Cole is a sinner and he deserved to be condemned. And Jesus saying, yeah, you're done. Well, but Cole, you're done. But Cole, but you're done, right? It's been condemned. It doesn't have a voice, man. I've heard your argument, sin. I've heard your point. I've heard your voice, and the conversation is over. You're done. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God has condemned your sin in the flesh, and you no longer live in the flesh. You live in the Spirit, not under the law. I can't think of better news for you. The law is awesome, but you're horrible at keeping it. The law says you're done, but the Spirit says you're free. The law is good. The Spirit is God. The law was written on tablets of stone. The Spirit was written on your heart. The law says do, but the Spirit says done. The law instructs, but the Spirit fulfills. The law condemns, but the Spirit convicts. There's so much condemnation in the world. You know, I was talking to my community group about this a couple of weeks ago. There's so much condemnation in the world. Everybody experiences. Just log on to Facebook. People aren't wrong. They're idiots. Right? If you look at if you look at Facebook, right? You didn't just make a mistake in your logic, you're worthless. There's so much condemnation. One of the places where I saw this most clearly was when I was a high school English teacher at parent teacher conferences you want to see condemnation, you go to a parent-teacher conference. So often what I would see is these kids would come up with their parents with a D minus or a D plus or an F and they would sit down in front of me as their teacher and before i could even start to talk about what was going on in their lives sometimes they would have parents who would sit down with an exasperated tone and sometimes before i could even say anything the kid or the, the parent would just jump in by saying oh, i'm so sorry you got to deal with my kid my kid is such an idiot and i used to think ah oh, it's no wonder your kid is getting a d plus or a d minus you know it's no wonder your kid is flunking He's lived under your condemnation all the time. He's lived under your judgment that he's a loser. And all he's doing is fulfilling your prophecies. All he's doing is living into the identity that you've given him. And I'm, I'm not a mean person, and I'm not a rude person, and I, I don't try to cut people off, but this became such a common conversation with flunking students that at parent-teacher conferences, if a parent would just start to condemn their kid, I would just cut him off and be like, hey, you know what? Your kid is not an idiot. He's actually pretty brilliant. Granted... He doesn't use his brilliance on his schoolwork and we should tweak that a little bit and maybe what would it look like for him to use his brilliance not to text message in class and not to build awesome paper airplanes. What would it look like to take that brilliance and then put it into their schoolwork? Just a little bit of a tweak there, but it just drove me nuts because it's just like, there's nothing more infuriating And seeing a kid who's already ashamed and embarrassed who has a parent who condemns them by telling them, ugh, such a loser. You know what that is? That's the law. Some of you still live under the law. Your inner dialogue is, I mean, that that, that example I gave at the parent-teacher conference, That's your inner dialogue, isn't it? You live underneath the weight of your own inner voice of condemnation. You measure yourself and you're not the right size. You're name-calling yourself. You're condemning yourself. You live under the law and it's killing you. And Paul is begging you this morning. Come on. Walk in the Spirit. Stop living under the law. Walk in the Spirit. You no longer... You no longer have parent-teacher conferences with the law. You now get to do your parent-teacher conferences with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now the controlling factor of your inner dialogue, and there is no condemnation with the Holy Spirit. There's no name-calling with the Holy Spirit. There's no judgment with the Holy Spirit. You sit under the Spirit who reminds you that you are loved. Yeah, you may be struggling with sin, but you're loved by God. You may be flunking spiritually, but because of the gospel, you're acing it with God. You might be getting a D minus in life, but you're getting an A with God. Somehow, way, through Christ, you no longer have the F that you did before Christ. In Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you Jesus' A+. Jesus' perfect obedience underneath the law his perfect grade, his perfect life, somehow, some way that gets scribbled onto your report card, which I know sounds like too good to be true. And it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And it totally would be crazy if it weren't literally the essence of the gospel. (laughs) But it's true. Your report card has Jesus' grades on it. And that's why Paul can stand in front of these people and say, because of the Holy Spirit, there is no condemnation for you. When you stand before Jesus at the brink of eternity and you look face to face at your King of Kings and your Lord of Lords, he will not say to you, you're done. He'll say to you, you're mine, come home. And now that the Holy Spirit has taken away the condemnation of the law, What you want to know and what the church in Rome wants to know is really just one thing. If we don't live underneath the law, if we don't live under condemnation, then what in the world does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Paul, what is this brave new way of living? What is this way of life that is led by the Spirit rather than crushed by the law? Paul knows that this is exactly what the church in Rome needs to hear. Mama didn't raise no fool with Paul. So after finishing verse four of chapter eight, Paul is ready to walk these churches through what it means to follow the Spirit for the next 12 verses. Verses five through 17, Paul is going to outline what it means to walk according to the Spirit. And we're out of time this morning We'll dive into that next week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, people are tired of hearing it come out of my mouth. So I pray that in this moment, they would hear it come out of your mouth. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.